Judy Wallman, a professional genealogy researcher in Southern California, was doing some personal work on her own family tree. And she discovered that uh, Senator Harry Reid's great-great-uncle, Remus Reid, and uh, was a, a shared relative between them, she found out that Remus, in her research, Remus Reed was hanged for horse stealing and train robbery in Montana in 1889. And since both she and Senator Reed shared this common ancestor, she thought it would be kind of fun to let him know about it. On the back of a, a picture, a photograph that she had obtained during her research was this actual inscription that read, Remus Reed, horse thief sent to a U.S. government prison in 1883, escaped, went on to rob the Montana Railroad six times, was finally caught by Pinkerton detectives, convicted and hanged in 1889. So for fun, she just emailed this photograph and the information to Congressman Harry Reid to tell him about his own great-great-uncle. The photograph shows Remus Reed on the gallows with men putting a noose around his neck. Sometime later, a Harry Reed staff sent back the following statement. They were having a little fun of their own. And so rather tongue-in-cheek, they put a spin on the story as only the political culture can do. This was their response. Remus Reed was a famous cowboy in the Montana Territory. His business empire grew to include the acquisition of equestrian assets and dealings with the Montana Railroad. In 1883, he devoted several years of his life to government service, but took leave to resume his dealings with the railroad. In 1887, he was a key player in an investigation by the Pinkerton Detective Agency. In 1889, Remus passed away during an important civic function held in his honor when the platform upon which he was standing suddenly collapsed. (laughs) How's that for spin, huh? That's great. Well, the truth is we'd probably cover up the story if he were our great-great-uncle, too. And that wouldn't be in the family album. You know, it occurred to me that There's coming a time on planet Earth when spin doctoring will reach levels never before achieved. And it won't be tongue-in-cheek. It will be deadly serious. The entire world will follow a man who captivates it by smooth speech and winsome ways. There is a coming world leader who will mesmerize Europe and the coalition of European countries. And then the rest of the civilized world will bow at his feet as he spins lies, sounding like deep truths. He will eventually be worshipped as a god. In reality, though, he is the incarnation of Satan's agenda. He is a murderer, a liar, and a cheat. He is the devil's Messiah. He is the prince of hell. The world is going to be falling apart during the fury of God's wrath. We've studied the outpouring of wrath already. But this man will still, in the midst of all of that, convince the world that he has everything under control. 
The church has a title for him that just cuts to the chase. We know him as the the Antichrist. He is the master spin doctor. Even the world today is fascinated by this coming mesmerizer. Just Google the words as I did this week in my study. Antichrist or the Antichrist. And you're going to come up with well over 2 million sites that you can surf. You're going to hear all sorts of speculations and prophecies and insight and visions. One sect I came across living in a Mexican village, they've named the New Jerusalem, which is a tip off to trouble, announced some time ago that they believe the Pope was being held captive in the basement of the Vatican so that the Antichrist could take over. That was creative. I agree with one author who who wrote that there has probably never been a time in the last 2,000 years when people were not curious about the Antichrist. The title, Antichrist, immediately provokes a response from the average guy on the street, doesn't it? Even the most biblically illiterate person has an opinion. He knows that the Antichrist stands for something evil. They know that it's a title that has bound up in it mystery and and intrigue and murder and demonic power. The Bible certainly isn't silent about this man. There are more than 200 passages that deal with the Antichrist, including information about his nationality, his career, his character, and his tragic end. And church leaders, in fact, have expounded on the biblical passages related to the Antichrist's brief rule on earth. Go all the way back to the second century with Irenaeus who wrote extensively on the Antichrist. In fact, wrote extensively on the meaning of the number 666. A signature work on the Antichrist was written by another church leader named Hippolytus around 200 AD. Tertullian also wrote about this man as he battled mysticism in the church during the third century. What I found interesting is that these men all expected the Antichrist to be just around the corner. Even John the Apostle wrote under the inspiring influence of the Holy Spirit in his second letter that the Antichrist was coming. The name Antichrist is found only five times in the New Testament. And all five come from the quill of the Apostle John. The prefix... Anti, for Antichrist, can be translated against, so that you can understand that he is against Christ. He is against uh, the true Christ. You could also translate anti to mean replacement or instead of. So, and it would be fitting, he is both against Christ and he will try to, to replace Christ claiming to be uh, the true God. So either way you translate the prefix, the Antichrist will definitely live up to his name. There are several titles for this coming spin master. He's known as the prince who is to come in Daniel 9. He's called the fierce king in Daniel 8. He's referred to as a despicable man. In Daniel 11, he's called a worthless shepherd by Zechariah. 
He's called the destroyer by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's referred to as the master of intrigue in Daniel chapter 8. And he's called the evil man in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. But when John introduces him to us in his revelation, he is always referred to as simply the beast. That word beast is from therion. It can be literally translated monster. It's a word that refers to a monstrous person in whom the political power of the world will be consolidated and concentrated in the life of this man of sin. Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. As John records the book of Revelation, now the, the, the inspiring Spirit of God has led him first to give us, as we have studied, a panoramic view of the wrath of God that begins to pour out at the beginning of the tribulation. We've studied those, those uh, horsemen and, and those uh, seals and those trumpet judgments. The church has already, or prior to the outpouring of his wrath, been raptured to heaven. And we have seen her, as John described her, represented by the elders singing the first hymns of heaven while the wrath of God is poured out on earth. Beginning now with Revelation chapter 12, John changes the perspective for the Bible student. To show us what we're calling the many faces of evil during this seven year period. And he kind of pulls back and shows us now a a different angle on on this period of of tribulation. He, He shows us first of all, as we've studied in our last sessions, the red dragon. This is first and foremost the the face of evil. It's an unusual title for Satan. A title which depicts his bloodthirsty, murderous pursuit of, of the Jewish people as well as those Jews and Gentiles who have trusted Christ as Messiah since the beginning of this tribulation occurred. In chapter 12 we're shown Satan's true nature. Uh, No more uh, spin doctoring on his desire. There's no more angel of light either. He is simply a dragon. He's a, he's a killer. He is an assassin, as it were, a murderer, a deceiver, a destroyer. This is Satan's evil passion. Chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, we're going to be introduced to his evil prince, the Antichrist. And the mask will be taken off him as well. The smooth-talking, spin-doctoring leader. And we're going to be shown what he really is. He's an assassin. He is a demonically inspired dictator. Now when you combine Revelation 13 with Daniel chapter 7. And you ought to write in the margin of your Bible somewhere. Just Daniel chapter 7. When you compare these two texts. We're actually given enough information to know where he comes from. How he rises to power. What he hopes to accomplish and uh, how he is empowered. Now look with me at just the first opening phrase of Revelation 13. That first phrase of verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Now this is a reference to Satan. The antecedent to this opening phrase. In fact, the first phrase of chapter 13 would be better serving as the closing phrase of chapter 12. 
I think perhaps a better division of what we know to not be inspired divisions in Scripture. We've been given just the text later on. Verses and chapter divisions were, were offered to, to help us. Uh, you could go back to the last verse of chapter 12 and sort of get a running start on the scene. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, Israel. And went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. In Revelation chapter 20, uh, we're given a little explanation that the sand of the seashore is used to speak of the nations of the world. So here you have Satan. You, You have this... This uh, brutal beast standing, as it were, in the midst of the nations of the world. He's ready to begin his agenda as the tribulation begins. Uh, But he's missing something. He's literally missing someone. He needs a physical body. He needs a man to do his bidding. And he longs for one who will live and serve as the ultimate anti Christ. Here he comes. Verse 1 again. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now let's just slow down and unpack this as carefully as we, as we can. This is very similar to John's description of Satan earlier in chapter 12. The difference, if you compare the two, is that the diadems or the royal crowns are on now on top of the ten horns. So in other words, there will be ten kings who will be serving at the same time under the direction of the Antichrist. Now this title, Beast, you will find as you study this along with me, will refer at times to not only this man... But this man's kingdom, it'll be used interchangeably. It will stand for a representation, not only of the man, but that kingdom which he he leads. We do the same thing. We've done the same thing with history. We've spoken of, of things this way with Hitler's name. Hitler stands for Nazi Germany, and Nazi Germany is sort of was summarized in the name Hitler. We say Hitler bombed London. Hitler never flew a plane, but we understand it was his kingdom that bombed London. So the same thing is happening here with this term beast interchangeably used to speak of the evil kingdom of Satan and the evil prince. John informs us here, as we just read, that there are ten horns. You may remember that horns are symbolic for kings and kingly power. In other words, when the Antichrist rises to power, there will be ten kings ruling together, forming a coalition of what Daniel reveals to be a revival of the Roman Empire. John also refers to seven heads, which is a reference, as we've already learned, to the culmination of the seven empires that have ruled the known world. It might help you to mark into the margin of your Bibles above verse 1. Maybe circle the word horns and and draw a line out to the edge and write kings. And and then circle the word heads and, and draw a line out to the margin and write empires. 
Now in Daniel chapter 7, we're told that the Antichrist comes up among these ten horns, these ten kings. And he arises as a little horn or a little king. He's the eleventh as he grows in, in power. In other words, he will begin among them as an insignificant leader. He begins among the ten kings forming the coalition of the revived Roman Empire. Listen, he does not start out as the president of the world's greatest superpower and then move to Europe. No, he begins in an insignificant role and he grows in power and and influence. In fact, Daniel informs us that he will eventually pull out three horns or three kings by the roots. The language indicates that that there will be violence. He will conquer three of the kings and then subjugate the other kingdoms, creating a united European empire that will follow his dictatorial rule. John described this revived Roman empire as one, and I quote him, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now I want you to notice one other thing in verse 1. It's that last descriptive phrase. This is a new phrase we haven't yet looked at. It says on his heads were blasphemous names. Now what does that mean? Well it means that the primary purpose of this kingdom, these kings and certainly the Antichrist, is to destroy the worship and the integrity of the one true and living God. If you went over to chapter 17, verse 12, and for the sake of time, I'll just read it. But we're told that the ten horns, John, which you saw, are ten kings. And they have one purpose. And they give their power and authority to the Antichrist to fulfill that purpose. Well, what is that one purpose? John writes in verse 13, these will wage war with the Lamb. The revived Roman Empire will sort of shake It's collective fist at the Lamb, Jesus Christ, whom they hate, and all those who follow the true Messiah. And so it's described as blasphemy embedded in their crowns, which takes you back to history. And it's easy to see the beginnings of that first Roman Empire where they shook their face at God. The former emperors of Rome did the same, Domitian. The emperor who was ruling at the very time John is writing blasphemed God. In fact, he had in his gold crown that he wore images of Roman deities. He required that his priests also wear gold crowns, which would be decorated and were with his own image. Every Roman emperor, every one of them, were called divas. Or divus, meaning divine. Nero even had stamped in his coinage while he ruled his favorite title, Savior of the World. The later emperors even took the title Curios, which is translated Lord. And Christians would die throughout the Roman Empire because they would refuse to offer annually that pinch of incense to Caesar and as required by law to utter the oath, Caesar is Lord Curios. They wouldn't do it. And so they were put to death by the cartload. Just like them, these Caesars of old, 
when the Roman Empire is resurrected, so to speak, or revived, the last Caesar will do the same thing. He will demand allegiance. He will ultimately demand worship. He will claim the titles. Divas, Curios, the savior of the world. Now there has been a lot of speculation and so I build into my introduction and we're still in the introduction here. You know, who, who is this Antichrist? You know, there's a lot of speculation and figuring and all of that sort of thing. And I'll tell you at the end of the sermon today why it's dangerous. But you don't have to have much of an imagination to understand why the church in the 1930s and 1940s got distracted in believing that the Antichrist was who? Adolf Hitler. I mean, think about it. With the clues that we do know, he grew up in Europe, was an insignificant leader, eventually gaining influence over time, specifically through the writing that grew popular in those days of turmoil. Finally, Germany lay at his feet. He claimed to be a champion of a new race, a superior race. It wasn't long before he was gobbling up European Nations in his quest for world domination, and you add to the fact that fact that he hated the Jews and he hated Jesus Christ. And probably we, along with many others, would have said, He's the one. Hitler even boasted that just as Jesus Christ's birth had changed the calendar, so his victories would, would be the beginning of a new age. He actually said, and I quote, what Christ began, I will complete. At one of his Nuremberg rallies, a giant photograph was displayed during the rally and it carried the caption, in the beginning was the word. Well, I will tell you, obviously he wasn't the Antichrist, but that ultimate final Antichrist will be crowned with similar blasphemy. He and his puppet kings in this coalition will fancy themselves as more powerful than the Christian's God who seems to have lost control, who is so passe. Whereas my daughter would say, so yesterday. (laughs) Notice how John describes this coming kingdom of Antichrist in verse 2 of Revelation 13. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard... His feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. He is empowered by Satan himself. Now this verse again is best understood with Daniel 7 as a commentary where Daniel sees the coming of world kingdoms culminating in the final kingdom of the Antichrist. The first kingdom, and he was dead on the money, even though he's speaking prophetically, was Babylon, seen as a lion with ravenous appetites and a terrifying presence. He then prophesied that the the, the kingdom that would crush Babylon was the bear, representing the Medo-Persian kingdom with its, its claws, crushing claws and massive strength. He then prophesied that the leopard, which was Greece, would follow next, moving with incredibly swift speed to conquer the world. And in just exactly that way, Alexander the Great, the Grecian ruler, so conquered the world in such a quick, rapid fashion that even still as a young man, he wept that there were no more worlds to conquer. And then you have the final 
kingdom which is yet to be established. The kingdom of the Antichrist described by Daniel and I quote him as dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It has large iron teeth. It devours, crushes, tramples down the remainder with its feet. It's different from all the beasts that were before it. And it has ten horns. Imagine such clarity and perfect unity. Though separated by 600 years. Daniel and John both see a coalition of ten kings. Formed in the revived Roman Empire of Western Europe. Ruled by the Antichrist. Well let me stop. For just a moment and review what we have learned thus far. In fact, going back into some of our other studies about the rise of this last and final Caesar. Let me give you five observations. First of all, he will rise in influence from an insignificant political position. Daniel 7 verse 8 says he's going to be a small king rising up among the other ones. He'll do something brutal, perhaps assassinate Uh, Three kings, I don't know what it will be, a coup attempt, we're not told. The second observation then is he will work his way into this ten king coalition and overthrow these three rulers. That's Daniel 7 verse 20. In Revelation 17 we're told he'll gain the loyalty of the remaining kings that will allow him dictatorial rule. Number four... His nationality will be, in general, European, more specifically, Roman. Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, tell us that the Antichrist will be of the same nationality as the people who destroyed Jerusalem. We know that to be the Romans, living there in Italy under the direction of Titus. Number five, his rise to power, and we've already learned this, but let me repeat it here. His rise to power will be marked by his ingenious Middle East solution. Now we've already studied his peace accord with Israel that allows them safety, temporary freedom, and the license to construct a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which will be nothing short of miraculous. Peace, which the Antichrist brings to Israel may very well be, and I believe it will be, an imposed, forced peace. Daniel describes it as as a firm covenant. When the rider on the white horse rides forward to begin the tribulation, as we studied in that first seal, he'll have with him a bow but no arrows. There'll be the threat of war without bloodshed, at least at first. That peace accord will allow Israel to regather in the nation and this temple to be rebuilt. Daniel describes that peace as a firm covenant. The Hebrew language can be actually translated a forced covenant, a compelled covenant. It's possible that the Antichrist would be in a position of influence where he would offer something that the rest of the kings would say, this is it, and now we're going to give this to Israel, and it is a take it or leave it, an imposed Covenant. Listen, the, the idea of an imposed peace uh, on Israel by a confederation of Western nations doesn't really take that much imagination, does it? Uh, just read the newspapers and watch 
the news. It's one ongoing battle for the land and everybody's weary of it and the weariness is growing. Even now the United Nations are unable as they typically are to keep peace, certainly to keep peace in the Middle East. Name the leader that's come across the stage in my own lifetime and yours. If you're as old as I am, you saw Jimmy Carter attempt it, thought he could bring peace to the Middle East and he couldn't. Ronald Reagan tried it. Bill Clinton gave it his best effort. The Bush administration tried it and that administration ended with missiles flying through the air. Obama will give it one more good attempt in a long line of failed ceasefires and paper thin peace treaties. Go back even further. You have Henry Kissinger. You remember him? Everybody thought he would do it, achieve it. He didn't. Nixon tried it. So did Ford. You name the president, you name the diplomat, you name the administration, you name the other country's leaders who've tried it. No one on the planet has succeeded in giving the Middle East a peaceful solution much less a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. But in recent years, in our lifetime, growing on the horizon of public awareness is the reviving of Western European nations in the forming of a coalition which may or may not be what he's talking about here, but it would certainly not take much in that imagination to see it providing the groundwork for it. The European Union has surfaced in our generation. It's now being hailed by many today as the restoration of the Roman Empire. It's now 27 nations strong. So it doesn't fit the model of inspired scripture. Something has to happen either with that or it dissolves and something else is created because when it When it takes shape and it's fashioned according to God's plan, it will be carved into ten divisions, ten kings. And the word of God will not miss the mark by one number. Little doubt in my mind that what we may be seeing is the groundwork for this, the setting perhaps for the last Caesar. This union now has a parliament. It now has an elected president. CNN gushed with the news for the first time since the Roman Empire. A large portion of Europe now shares a common currency. It's interesting if you study history to note that the ancient Roman Empire began as a republic with a democratically elected senate and then regressed to rule by one man, Caesar Augustus, the first Caesar in line and the first Caesar to call himself Lord. History, according to what I read here, is going to repeat itself. The restored Roman Empire, which may be in the works today, has a democratically elected parliament, a democratically elected president. But it will one day, if this is it, regress to rule by one man. The last Caesar... The last Caesar in line to call himself Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, the next chapter can be written at any time. Peace in the Middle East will be the signature of the Antichrist whereby he will amaze the world. That will serve as a capstone to his meteoric rise to power. And is the world ever willing and ready for another Caesar? Listen to what one historian wrote 
a British historian who wrote this several decades ago, in fact. And I quote Arnold Toynbee, by forcing on mankind more and more lethal weapons and at the same time making the world more and more interdependent economically, we are ripe for the deification of a new Caesar who might succeed in giving the world unity and peace. Now, I I want us to be careful, especially when you start a series on the Antichrist. Okay, I've been, I've I've surfed enough to know we we need to be certainly careful, and I'm sure you know too. We're not going to spend our waking hours or our time discussing if the Antichrist is alive today or not. He may be. We're not going to try to decide if he's in London or Greece or Spain or Rome. It won't do us any good. In fact, it'll only keep us from praying for whomever we pinpoint as the Antichrist, which we've been told to do in this dispensation. Uh, We have already discovered that the Antichrist will not be revealed until after the rapture. Revelation 6 clearly informs us that his emergence with this peace plan for the Middle East will take place after the church is taken to the throne of God's glorious heaven. So we will know, we'll know after we're raptured. When he is revealed. So let's not spend a whole lot of time speculating on the latest inclination toward what we believe may be uh, the Antichrist. Before the rapture, uh, the Antichrist will be an insignificant, small player in the European unification system. He probably won't get anybody's attention. There will be several months Most Bible scholars believe between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. And so there can be some things that will happen quickly. His formal introduction into the world scene as a major player will follow his his ingenious Middle Eastern plan. And it will be ingenious to have the Arabs and the Jews worshiping on the same mount. I personally believe that the enemy of the church would love us to pinpoint Someone as, you know, the next or what we believe to be the Antichrist. And at the same time then, cause us to fail to focus on that which seems to catch the church off guard in every generation. Certainly in our generation. It is what the, the author of scripture, John the Apostle, calls the spirit of Antichrist. He wrote that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the first century, and certainly it has been working now into the 21st century, 1 John 2, 18. The spirit of Antichrist is alive in in every uh, century and generation. The spirit of Antichrist is what? It would be that which is categorized and culminated in this false leader. It would be that satanically engineered system of our world that blasphemes God, that hates Jesus Christ, that opposes the work of Christ, that opposes the church, and that attempts to drown out the truth of God's word that can happen inside the church. That exists now. John says, listen, the Antichrist is coming, but even now, the spirit of Antichrist is at work. 1 John two eighteen. This is the spirit of twisting the truth. And taking a lie and making it acceptable in your culture, maybe even in the church. Uh, taking that which is nothing less than greed or lust and making it fashionable and acceptable. 
taking a lie and spinning it into the truth. That is the spirit of Antichrist. And I fear the church in every generation risks the distraction of going after the person of the Antichrist and being blinded to the spirit of the Antichrist. I've mentioned before, I think, to you, when our kids were younger, we would, when we were watching television, we would tell them to spot the lie. It's a great exercise for those of you who are parenting younger children. Just tell them to spot the lie, especially during the commercials. The commercial's over. Okay, now tell me what the lie was. Oh, we got it, Daddy. We, we know. They said if you buy that, you're, you're happy. Or if you have that, you're cool. Or, or whatever. That's right. It's a lie. Can you spot the lies in our culture that may have even crept into the church. I just kind of propped my feet up on my desk and jotted down a few of them uh, that have struck my attention. Try these on for size. They're, they're being spun into the latest fashion of public consumption. Here's one. What you do in private is nobody else's business. Here's another. Divorce doesn't really hurt children. How about this one? Marriage is the union of two loving partners regardless of sexual orientation. Here's some more popular ones. Belief in moral absolutes is proud and unfair. If it's legal, it's acceptable. Telling someone they are sinners in need of forgiveness is hateful speech. Sexual relations before marriage proves you love them. Truth is a relative term defined only by you. If you believe in yourself, anything is possible. It's up to you to save the planet from destruction. Pride in one's own self... And one's own accomplishments are part of a healthy self-image. You are part of the universe, a piece of the divine. PG-13 means a movie is suitable for 13-year-olds. Bisexual experimentation is part of discovering the real you. All the wisdom you need is already within you. Living together is a good warm-up to marriage. Abortion is the removal of fetal tissue. What you do in Vegas will never follow you home. At 21, it is legally and socially acceptable to get drunk so long as someone else drives you home. Are you alert to the spin doctoring in our own culture and maybe in the church today? A lie that is parroted by enough people 
or some significant person in your life that makes you believe that the lie is actually the truth. Listen, beloved, as we spend several sessions uncovering the clues about the coming Antichrist and the devastation he's going to bring with his lies and blasphemy, let's make sure that we are right now alert to the spirit of Antichrist that we might be inviting into our lives our own self-justification, our own greed, our own thinking, our own lust, our own planning. I personally believe that the rider of the white horse is about to mount up. I mean, any day. But you know what? That doesn't pose any danger for me. It doesn't pose any danger for you. We're gone when he rides forward. But the challenge and the danger... And the warning of John the Apostle. Make sure you don't allow his lies to gallop into your heart and your mind. While you wait for the rapture. While you listen for the upward call of Jesus Christ. Who is the true Messiah. We thank you Father for again your word. It is rich pasture It is food for our souls and our hearts. It is convicting. At the same time, it is healing. It is challenging, while at the same time, encouraging. Would you, by your spirit, as a result of assembling together in which you decided in your own thinking and mind, and certainly it has been true, proven true over and over again, that the assembly provokes us to love and good works. Provoke in our hearts a greater alertness and awareness, a greater appreciation that we're safe in Christ, and yet in danger from the enemy and the spirit of Antichrist that circles the globe even now. Help every parent raising children today as they wade through the messages in this culture geared toward them. I pray for every aging senior, messages that communicate to them misplaced trust and hope. Every middle-aged individual in the midst of a career who might place their faith in a bank account, who might place their significance in a title or a position, help us to be alert. For you are worthy, Lord, of all our attention and focus. Would you be pleased as we together end this hour by saying, indeed, you are our Lord. You are the true Lord, the living Lord, the only Lord. May we live it in front of our culture that is chasing false gods and lies. In Jesus' name.